There's fear all over the town. Uh, it was just a tragedy. Rhonda Blaylock's murder had been thrust back into the spotlight, with the task force bearing her name being announced. She had just began high school and didn't have a chance to experience that as a young teenager, a high school life. A media blitz, bringing her name and face to millions of people as the search for one person ramped up. A photo of an innocent-looking teenager plastered on TV screens and the front doors of small-town businesses. A heinous crime. But if you knew Rhonda and her nature, you'd be even more compelled to find out who stole her from this world. I mean, even that picture of her, you know, that they put out, so sweet, you know. I mean, yeah, she was turning into a teenager, but still. Whether it's the picture of her hand on her newborn cousin, the shy smile in front of a blooming bush, the childlike pigtails, and the blue stuffed animal in her hands as she stood next to her mother. All good memories for her family overshadowed by the ones formed over the decades worth of wondering who raped and brutally stabbed her to death. We talked to those who grew up with her and watched her grow up. Just as a parent myself, you know, I. I wouldn't want to live every day with that thought, you know, that my child suffered like that. Until her growth was stunted on a North Carolina summer's day. I'm Fox 8's Michael Hennessy, and this is Murder in Pilot Mountain, a 40-year mystery. November 9th, 1965, in North Carolina's Piedmont. The high temperature was 74 degrees, the low 48. There were about four and a half hours of sunshine, partly to mostly cloudy. The strongest gust came out of the northeast at 14 miles per hour. But for Lynn and Freddie Blaylock, who'd been wed about a year and a half earlier, the winds of change arrived with the birth of their first child. She was given the name Rhonda Michelle. Her mom made most of her clothes, and so I would get all of her hand-me-down clothes. Her cousin, Sherry Thigpen, was born about two years later. There's a picture that was stored at Sherry's house on the coast that shows her in all white, crying, cradled in Lynn's left arm. Her right arm was wrapped around Rhonda, who sat on her lap. Rhonda, with short brown hair, was dressed in a pink top with a white collar. Her right arm was outstretched her hand on Sherry's stomach, seemingly trying to comfort her new cousin with a determined, calm expression on her face. It was this compassion that Sherry came to know and love. We would often spend the weekends at my grandparents' house and just play out in the woods, play blocks, listen to music. Rhonda grew up in a structured household, loving and protective, she was a Girl Scout. A picture shows her with long, wavy hair falling beyond her shoulders. Her hair split at the middle, her left ear visible with a small earring. The green Girl Scout hat marked with a GS, a white short-sleeved button-down. A green jumper-style dress with two pins near her left shoulder. Her now long, slender hands rested on top of each other in her lap as she smiled to the right of the camera. A small gap between her front teeth. He went to private school, Christian school. Retired for Scythe County Sheriff's Office Captain Jason Swain read up on Rhonda early and often in the beginning stages of his involvement with Rhonda's task force. He called her a latchkey child, living in a town where keys were often unnecessary to get into one's home because it was thought to be safe. Nobody locked their doors. She would get off the school bus, go in and change out of her school clothes and her 
her play clothes, for lack of a better term, and and wait on her mom or her dad to get home from work. Lynn and Freddie never did have another child, and they poured all of their love into their girl and gave it their all to protect her. More than four decades later, Sherry remembers examples of that. I would go to her house and spend the night more than she would come to my house and spend the night just because her parents wouldn't, you know, she was an only child. Lynn may have made Rhonda's clothes by hand, but when it came to the finer things a teenager growing up in the 70s would desire, Rhonda didn't want for much. I mean, she had everything in her room. She had all the latest Barbie dolls and the music and everything. Lynn remembered her daughter as having her priorities straight, falling in line with how she was raised. She was shy. Um, she uh, did well in school. Rhonda's aunt, Vicki Thomas, was also able to look at Rhonda from an adult's point of view. Rhonda was very sweet and loving, very innocent person, would never do anything or anyone. There was the group of friends Rhonda had from her elementary and middle school years, Tammy Worrell being one of them. Um, I saw her three weeks before she passed. One of her last memories also taking place in Rhonda's room. Michael Jackson's Off the Wall was released August 10th, 1979. The album would go platinum eight times over in the United States. She loved Michael Jackson. And back then, he had just came out with his new album, and she had gotten it. And we had our own little dance party the weekend she got the new record. Spent the weekend together. Don't stop till you get enough. Rock with you. Working day and night. On repeat. Day and night. A couple old friends still holding on to their youthful exuberance, but Rhonda was changing physically, mentally, emotionally, as all teens do. And just as she did with her hand-me-downs, passed along what life was like as a 14-year-old to 12-year-old Sherry. I mean, because I was more innocent probably than she was, and she'd tell me about kissing boys and stuff like that. And I just was kind of in awe of that, because that was all foreign to me. It was time for Rhonda to go to public school. It was either the last year or six months prior to her going missing had started public school, and she met a whole new group of friends. And it was one of those new friends that would be the last to see Rhonda's smile. Pictures show it was a more confident one than in her earlier years. Wider, inviting. August 26th, 1980 was a gorgeous day. Rhonda had gone to school, and when she and her classmates got out, they were welcomed with an 86-degree day. It was completely sunny, 100% clear. Average winds just over 5 miles per hour. The maximum gust of 12 miles per hour would have been a much-needed cooling breeze. Rural Hall in 1980 was even more rural than it is now. There wasn't anything to do. Rhonda and her friend were outside the Rural Hall bowling alley when the blue pickup truck we told you about in episode 1 pulled up. The baseball cap and mirrored aviator sunglasses people said the driver was wearing wouldn't have been out of the ordinary on such a bright day. She was too trusting, I think. Lynn reflecting on how her daughter was raised. Perhaps Rhonda thought everyone in this world was as good-natured as she was. She was wrong. It just changed, changed things, and so I think that's why it maybe still intrigues people that 
something that bad could happen so close to home. You think New York City or L.A. or somewhere like that, you're in danger, but I guess you're just as much in danger here as, as anywhere. Pilot Mountain would have been a vivid green that day. And with the lack of cloud cover, you could easily see the Blue Ridge Mountains, Sauratown Mountains, and seemingly endless panoramas of the Piedmont from its summit. Places it would take you several hours to get to from there. Rhonda failed to see the menace that had her in view. I guess they, they just thought it, w- it was an innocent person. They never, I guess they never dreamed that it would end like it did. It was a Tuesday. The next day was 87 degrees. The day after that, 90. The 29th was a Friday. It started with some fog in the morning. As it lifted, smoke and haze remained in the air. There was virtually no wind. It was 89 degrees. Rhonda should have been leaving her last class with the excitement the weekend holds. Instead of making discoveries in the classroom, it was she who was being discovered. The scene, described simply as brutal, by some of the state's most hardened investigators. Her 14-year-old body, partially exposed, bloodied from several stab wounds. One can only imagine what three straight days of summer heat would have done to her remains. In the coming days, a black and white paper with words that tell us more about Rhonda. Under the word deaths, a smaller bold font reads Blaylock. Her obituary saying she'd been born in Forsyth County and was a ninth grade student at Atkins High School. She was a Red Cross volunteer, it reads, at Baptist Hospital, a member of the Poplar Springs Church of Christ. Surviving, in addition to her parents, it continues, are her grandparents, Mr. and Mrs. T.W. Blaylock of Stanleyville, North Carolina, and Mr. and Mrs. Carl B. Claudfelter of Winston-Salem. So not only did her parents have to bury their child, but four grandparents had to bury their grandchild. Funeral arrangements were set for the following day at 11 o'clock in the morning. The family received friends at the Hayworth Miller Rural Hall Chapel from 7 to 9 the night before. They requested that memorials be made to the Grundy Mountain Mission School through the church. Or I talk to people now and they say, yeah, I remember that, I remember that. And, you know, after that, we were scared to do things. Her headstone was tiny, just her name, birthday, and the day she died. It would eventually be replaced once the parents who had to put their daughter in the ground joined her there. I've had cases where, uh, like I said, they've lived a normal life. And when they see me, they know why I'm there. And I've actually told them before that I'm the person that they never wanted to see before. And, they, and sometimes they would nod and understand exactly what I was saying. That's all I had to say. Lloyd Terry is a retired assistant special agent in charge for the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation. He's put a lot of bad guys behind bars. He'd heard of the Blaylock case and was close to retirement. Solving it would have been quite a way to go out. It was a brutal scene. It's brutal to see things like that, whether it's your first one or your 400s. I'm retired. I retired as a captain with the sheriff's office. Captain Swaim had retired from the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office, but came out of retirement to dive into the case. Who's our best suspect? Who had the motive? Who had the opportunity? Things like that. 
I'm currently a captain with the sheriff's office here in Surrey. Scott Hudson is a current captain with the Surrey County Sheriff's Office. They'd been joining forces behind the scenes. You've got a thousand thoughts going through your head. You know, what do I do next? We've got really good leads. But on March 30th, 2015, then Surrey County Sheriff Graham Atkinson called for the press conference to announce the Rhonda Blaylock task force. He said it was a phone call from Lynn Blaylock, who'd been asking about the status of the investigation, which renewed attention to it. And it was there that he played the video of Lynn in her living room asking for answers. No, it was uh, an anniversary of a death was what prompted me. I guess it just happened to be on that day, and I just finally worked at my courage. Perhaps the anniversary of Freddie's death? It would have only been about a month and a half prior. It took me a while, because I would think, like, the week before that and the week before that, should I call this day? Well, no, it's snow on the ground. They can't get in the driveway if they come down here. Exactly a week after the anniversary of Freddie's death, there was a pretty significant snowstorm. February 25th and 26th, 2015, brought about six inches of snow, which is a lot for the Piedmont. It doesn't snow very often, even in a town named for a mountain. So, you know, I kept finding one excuse after another, and then finally I said, I've just got to call. I've just got to know. Atkinson said within a day or so of getting Lynn's call, there were developments he couldn't discuss there on that day, but said the task force was pursuing good leads. Agencies from Forsyth, Stokes, and Surrey counties and officials from South Carolina were concentrating their efforts on finding Rhonda's killer. We'd later learn there were far more who had to get involved. They ran through the details. Many of us who were in attendance had never heard of the case before. Talk about the bowling alley, the blue Chevy truck, and Butch or Jimmy. Lynn admitted she'd searched on her own, too, as a grieving mother forever looking for answers. When I would get the, uh, uh, some information that a certain uh, truck meeting this description was at a somewhere, I would jump in the car and I'd, you know, go look and they'd either be gone or it wouldn't be anything that really fit the description. Uh, you know, that happened a few times. Atkinson talked about how Rhonda's friend had been dropped off at the intersection of Tuttle and Pretty Farm Roads. We won't identify the friend, but we went and briefly talked to the friend's mother who still lives in the same house. Hi, we're with Fox 8 News. She said they lived in fear for quite some time that whoever killed Rhonda would come back and get her daughter. But she declined to talk about it further because she had to go to church. It was a Wednesday night just before the 7 o'clock service at Lighthouse Baptist Church, which was at the end Have a great night. of Pretty Farm Road. And she's declined to talk to us since. If the suspect sees this or was in Back the to the press conference, the investigators talked about how Rhonda was found, saying the autopsy showed Rhonda had been viciously assaulted and stabbed to death and said witnesses in the original investigation had been re-interviewed and gave them important facts that had never been shared with law enforcement before. How it's difficult to believe that a friend or loved one was involved in a violent crime. Something Swaim offered some perspective on. Homicides in general. In the beginning, time's your enemy. But as time goes on, as the years go by, time becomes your friend. And I say that because uh, relationships fall apart and 
uh, you know, you're not in a rush to try to catch a guy, you know, because they're not running, you're not trying to get all the leads. You got everything, you're just trying to go back and put the puzzle together. They released two sketches of what Jimmy or Butch could have looked like, putting some faces to the description we talked about in episode one. The left one showed a white guy with a little bit of facial hair, sort of a goatee and some scruff on the cheeks, what looked like curly black hair and icy eyes. The right one showed another white man wearing the mirrored aviator sunglasses with straight, shiny, slightly lighter hair split at the middle. It was a longer haircut with the hair covering his ears and he had a thin mustache. The top of the flyer decorated with six different emblems for law enforcement agencies, stressed that all information would remain confidential. And at the bottom, the largest letters were white with a red background, reading reward with dollar signs on both sides. Money talks. Trying to find people, you know, and some of them moved out of state, moved away, and, and that was, was interesting to go back and find them and then start talking to them and get their, you know, what did they remember? You know, because they were teenagers at the time and now they're nearly 50 years old. The task force was off and running. The man they'd eventually land on was not. I know of cases where uh, people's been murdered and the suspects go on with a normal life. Never had a speeding ticket for 16 years. Never broken the law once uh, that's on the record. Uh, get married and raise, raise a family. Uh, some have even gotten married, raised a family and had grandkids. He'd been under their noses the entire time. The trick was getting him under their thumbs. We put flyers up everywhere. Posters, you know, in little sto country stores. Just uh, a media blitz. And we started getting phone calls. The flyers were plastered. The tips were piling up. Each and every one needed to be investigated, taking these detectives, who knew every trick in the book, on a journey which would lead them states away, only to loop back to the sticks, so to speak, and a 62-year-old man living less than 10 miles from the Surrey County Sheriff's Office headquarters, in a home about a half hour west of where Rhonda's body was found. We detail their journey and the decisive evidence next time on episode three of Murder in Pilot Mountain, a 40-year mystery. If you like the podcast, please rate it, comment on it, subscribe to it, tell a friend. According to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, 800,000 children are reported missing each year in the United States, and there's a national hotline to help track them down at one 800 843 5678. That's 1 800 The Lost. You can see those photos of Rhonda, the police sketches, and watch for yourself her mother's plea to find her daughter's killer all on our website. That is myfox8.com. Murder in Pilot Mountain, 40 Year Mystery, was written and reported on by me, Michael Hennessy, and edited by Chris Weaver. Our executive producer is Kevin Daniels. <laughs>